Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor, and I'm a mom. We're getting real about all things family from a mental health perspective. So let's get to it. Self-care is tough enough to wrap our heads around at times and even harder to incorporate and keep as a priority, but when you're a parent, it can feel impossible. And I'll say this, if parenting kids who are on track developmentally make self-care feel impossible at times, what is it like for those parenting kids with extra or special needs? What is the word for more than impossible? At the same time, you're feeling that you can't fit it in. You are also very painfully aware of how this is the phase of life that you need it the most. I do have a few thoughts about this, um, mostly coming from a very personal place of having shelved my own needs for almost a decade. To do what I thought at the time was prioritizing my kids' mental health, my partner's well-being, my work. I remember at some point along the journey getting sick, uh, just with a cold, but it ended up um, making me lose my voice for about a week. At the time, my kids were about uh, probably six and three-ish, and my toddler needed constant monitoring and struggled with multiple two to three hour long meltdowns per day. There were constant storms brewing for her inside, and we were kind of all on eggshells trying to manage them. After day three of being sick, I went to see a doctor for what I knew at the time could really not be, like nothing could be done about it. Um, but I spent the whole appointment just sobbing my eyes out. I felt so pushed to the brink, so exhausted, out of control, and helpless. A simple cold was what pushed me over the edge. I felt like I couldn't afford to be in this state. I had so many people dependent on me. Truthfully, I had been on that brink for a very long time. But when you feel like you can't ever let your guard down, you find some amazing amounts of stamina to push through and keep going. Looking back, I honestly don't know how I survived those years, but I did certainly find out how much I could take without it completely killing me, but uh, it did not come without a significant cost. So if you're a mom who lays on their child's floor weeping, I feel you. If you're that parent whose child never turns off, I get you. And if you're a mom who can't possibly figure out what self-care could even look like in the midst of high-needs parenting, I totally hear you. We can't really effectively talk about self-care without first naming the load that is really going on. Your to-do list and jam-packed schedule is just the tip of the parenting iceberg. So I'm going to go beyond that and I'm going to name what sits under the waterline. Let's acknowledge your mental load. Parents and moms in particular carry a distinctive mental, what I call mother load. It's the invisible stuff, not the obvious task list that you do every day. I could rattle off a long list of things just contained to one day in your shoes that carry with it a mental load. But we don't have time to get into all of that today, so here's just one example to highlight what I mean by mental load. Mealtime. 
Okay, so on your to-do list, it will read something like make dinner. In your head though, it's all of this. Decide what to make and be sure you know that in advance. Keep constant mental tabs on your inventory. Manage kids while cooking. Make sure you picked up all the ingredients. Be mindful of your budget, but also of the allergies and intolerance of specific foods. Buy organic. If you feel the need to expose your kids to various foods, you're going to have to keep that in mind as well. You don't somehow want them to become picky eaters. Don't forget to clean the high chair, the booster seat, the table, the counters, the floor. Um, make sure that meals are nutritious. Consider personal preferences or making something that everyone will eat to go beyond the possible family fights at the table. Keep your kids from poking at one another. Deal with protests about eating those last few bites. And don't forget to clear the dishes and reload the dishwasher for that purple plate and a cup to be ready and available for snack time, which, by the way, will probably be requested in about 10 to 12 minutes from now. All of that just to get through one meal of one day. This is exactly why parenting is actually three to four full-time jobs, 24-7, seven days a week. No sick days or leave. Is there any wonder why self-care has never felt more needed, but also feels elusive or impossible to have? Okay, next, let's acknowledge our inner dialogue. Our framework for what we've come to expect of ourselves as parents and how we continually reference that to see if we're measuring up. If you feel like you need to measure up, you naturally need to come up with a measuring stick. That can be comparing yourselves to lives reflected online on social media. It can be what you were taught growing up about how good parenting should look. It can be the new hot book on the market telling you what style of parenting is the current gold standard, or it can be a combo. Once we have our measuring stick, we go into full evaluation mode, sometimes for every micro moment of parenting. I said that wrong. I've damaged my kid for life. I miss that learning opportunity. It's too late now, they're screwed. Other kids their age seem to be able to do blank, but my kids can't do that. I've obviously failed them. My friends seem to be able to work, teach their kids from home, manage to keep their house clean at the same time. And I am nowhere near feeling like I can hold all of that together. And what happens months or years after following that pattern of self-evaluation in the context of setting ourselves up for certain failure, it's shame. Okay, parents, let me tell you about shame. It is liquid. It seeps into every crack, it pours over smooth edges, and it sinks in deep. And it's flavorless, so it's hard to catch it in its tracks. It's sneaky, kind of brainwashy. Shame is not the same as guilt. Guilt is helpful. 
because it points to things that we can change, mistakes we've made where we can problem solve or find ways to improve. It helps us repair relationships. Guilt signals that you've done something wrong and there's a way to make it right. Shame, however, is just nasty. It doesn't point to the behavior, it points at your sense of worth. It says you are bad. It loves the words should have. You should have known better, you should have been better. You obviously aren't enough to be doing this. You suck. As Brene Brown says on repeat, shame is not an effective motivator for change. It does the opposite by eroding our confidence and telling us we're incapable or unworthy of a better outcome. Who on earth would try again if the stream of inner dialogue is shame-based? If all you hear in your head is, I'm so stupid, I'm a horrible mother, I'm no good at this, I'm useless, I should have been able to make my kids happy, but I'm clearly failing at it. When our inner critic sounds like this, it's a signal to bring on the antidote to shame, which is self-compassion. Self-compassion allows the inner voice to change its tone and its focus. It allows you to contain the, the critique to the behavior instead of smearing it all over your person. It offers opportunities to be kind and to be understanding. It sounds more like, I really messed up that situation. I'd like to do that differently next time. I can totally see why that's all I had to give in the moment. And that situation was super overwhelming. Or, man, that didn't go the way I intended. I yelled at my kids because I was worried for them. It shocked me, caught me off guard, and it spilled out before I felt capable of thinking that through. Refocusing the problem on the situation or the behavior lets you recognize it's normal not to get things right, and there's room for active repair. It means that you can leave the instant defensiveness at the door, and you can own the mistake. You can see how much more this is a paved route to improvement and wellness. So let's talk about this whole philosophy that your kids need you to be a perfect role model all the time to turn out well. There's a setup if I've ever heard one, and it is extremely common. Let's let ourselves change this storyline, this set of beliefs. The new truth can be that our kids are allowed to be whole humans with all sorts of feelings and reactions to the world, and so can you. They can make mistakes, and so can you. If you're worried that taking this new approach of parenting might mean that your bar and expectations might drop drastically and you'll stop trying, please work at letting that go, because if anything, it'll allow you to get back on the bike quicker less wasted time on self-flogging, and more time getting back to this parenting gig with purpose and a more accurate goal in mind, to belong to one another, to feel safe and securely connected. Okay, thanks for hanging in there for the preamble. I'm almost done on this part, but before 
I talk about what self-care for overwhelmed parents can actually look like, I want to address one more aspect of importance on this topic. Stop saying sorry. What I'm referring to here is the idea that on autopilot, we apologize. Here's something to try instead. When you are late to an appointment, say, thanks for waiting for me, instead of sorry and late. Try showing gratitude for how the other person is handling the issue at hand rather than defaulting to your sorry state. There are times when saying sorry is appropriate for sure, but I'll bet that if you stop to calculate the percentage of sidestepping situations that wind up in mindless sorry saying, you'll realize how much this is happening and likely reinforcing this belief that you are a problem, that you are not enough. In episode one of this self-care series, my profoundly brilliant guest, Liz Chan, helped us to set fire to the self-care that we're being sold, the commercialized version that promises comfort or escape as the fix. Not that taking breaks isn't a great idea, because it totally is, but that package of self-care on the store shelf isn't wholly effective because it isn't based on the principles of true self-care, the kind that helps us face ourselves, our weaknesses, that summons up honesty, courage, and connection with others. Commercial self-care helps us cover up wrinkles. It doesn't help us relate honestly and warmly to them. The fix isn't the problem so much as our lack of understanding of the problem. If we don't properly understand the need for self-care, we won't meet it properly with the band-aids. So if you missed that foundational conversation, I'd encourage you to go back to episode one in this series and sit with it for a bit because Liz covers a lot there. I refer back to our conversation in episode one because as parents, I don't want you to contribute to wasted energy because you barely have any at this point to begin with. I don't want you wasting it on things that can't deliver. Can't scented candles, probiotics, and cucumber face masks help? Uh-huh. Yep, maybe. But only if you've worked from the roots up. Only if they are a good match for what actually cares for your wounds, your pains, your insecurities, your disconnection, your worries, your relationships, and your insides. The creams and oils can be tools. But the real self-care doesn't require you to purchase anything or go anywhere far. It's your process and it's your approach to yourself. So here's what I often propose to parents in the thick of it who feel overwhelmed, have a billion valid reasons why taking off for breaks is not viable. Maybe it'll be helpful for you to consider these things too. Number one. Think outside the box. So don't hunt for the prescribed self-care tactics because if those would have worked for you, you wouldn't be wondering right now how to take care of yourself. Allow yourself to get creative and don't give up on brainstorming too easily. You are creative. Harness it and use it for yourself because you're worthy. 
Number two, know your processing and learning style. If you need peace and quiet to soak things in, those are conditions you'll have to prioritize to do the reading you want to do, learn the skills you want to learn, to just hear your own thoughts. If you thrive, though, from physical movement, then go for a walk, a run, a swim, or a bike ride, and that's where you can do your thinking, your reflecting, your soul, your soul searching. Number three, be realistic. When it comes to the part about actually doing your discerned self-care practices, don't go with pie in the sky. Ask yourself if these things on your list are feasible in your actual everyday life. Can you make them work and feel sustainable? Number four. Stop thinking about self-care as pampering and start considering small moments to pause for awareness and acknowledgement about how you're feeling and respond to yourself with intentionally being kind and having some understanding for yourself. Choose every hour to take five deep breaths. Attend to your basic needs recognizing your sleep patterns, people you can communicate with, whether or not you're nourishing your body throughout the day, and stay hydrated. Number five, incorporate something that gives you agency and meaning. These are things that can make you feel like you have some control of the outcome. Checking things off lists, doing a puzzle, reading a chapter, Clean a room. Dance while you monitor your kids play from the adjacent room. Do things that make you feel alive in some way and hold value or meaning to you. Number six, don't chuck all your self-care eggs in one basket. If you choose five strategies or so to care for yourself and they all involve movement, what happens if you get injured? Include strategies that span your areas of life, perhaps one artistic, one movement-based, one sleep or food-related, and one about fostering or engaging in a healthy relationship. Maybe it's a boundary you need to set. Number seven, permit yourself to parent in community or in partnership. Let people help you. Then communicate your needs clearly. Don't leave it for loved ones to guess what would be helpful. Spell it out. It's actually usually way more helpful for all involved when you go about it that way. And for today, I'm gonna to leave you with the weekly challenge. Catch your inner shame dialogue in the act and choose to respond to it with a statement of self-compassion change its course. Thanks for spending time with me today. Remember to check out the show notes for related resources. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, or you can also subscribe to my online learning page at my.thrive-life forward slash LRL series, where you'll get updates, extra tools for your toolkit. And if there's a topic that you want me to cover in this podcast, please shoot me a message. I would love to hear from you. 
shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in this mud. I will see you back here next time.